Welcome to the Association Strong Podcast, where we offer insight from both a seasoned association exec and an entrepreneur. I'm Dave Will. And I'm Tom Morrison. Listen in as we discuss and debate hot topics in the association community. Don't forget to subscribe and share us with your friends. Hello, Association Strong Podcast listeners. We are glad you're out here. Mr. Dave Will, my counterpart, seems to be running a little bit late. He will be jumping on here momentarily, but we today are so excited to talk about the number one, I can't, this finger cannot be large enough, the number one issue that is going to plague every industry, every association, everybody trying to hire somebody for the next at least eight to 10 years. And today we have with us uh, one of the most amazing geniuses I've ever been around in terms of labor economics. And, and he's actually a funny labor economist. So Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. That's a very, very complimentary introduction. I, it's funny to be introduced this way when all you're really telling people is just such horrible news. I mean, we have to, I guess we have to laugh at it to, to make it palatable. Well, you know what? We all, we, just like COVID taught us, we, you, don't, you don't grow and innovate unless you talk about what's right in front of you. And we have, if you don't talk about the elephant in the room, you're never going to actually grow. It's actually going to push you against the wall. So I'm excited we're here to talk about this because this is it's plaguing my industry like crazy. It's play, and, and people listening into our podcast come from everything from doctors to attorneys to manufacturing Ooh. to um, veterinarians. You name it, we have association listeners and all those uh, packets of people. So really excited. So, so kind of tee up for us a little bit. Tell us who Ron Hetrick is and what you've done in your past. I know you used to work for the, I guess, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Sure, sure. So, yeah, back in the uh, beginning of the early 90s, right after we came out of, or while we were still in the recession of 1990 and 92, I leave grad school and I go to work for the Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington, D.C. I was an analyst on the, an economist for the payroll statistics side. So every month the numbers come out and they say, you know, the unemployment rate is X and the, uh, we added 200,000, or in last month's case, you know, 500-something-thousand jobs. So the 500-something-thousand jobs, I started as an economist in that group, and then I ended up being a supervisor. I was overseeing the economist on that group. And then I uh, left the government to work for Allegis Group, which is the largest staffing company in the United States. It's a holding company of Tech Systems, Aerotech, and a bunch of other companies. I worked for them for 20 years, and then uh, started to work for MZ, which is now MZ Burning Glass, uh, as of uh, Monday, and I started there late in September of last year. And my role now is I oversee the the products that we do for the staffing industry. But we, uh, I'm also uh, a writer, and I love to write about uh, labor economics. In particular, my passion, and probably why I'm here today, is I look for gaps. I, I look for people that are in pain, like on a, a labor economic side. And my goal is to to try to explain why they're in pain and to try to see if there's a way out of it, especially if I see that the rest of the, the, the printed press is not really addressing the issues. That's awesome. So we have another guest with us. He's actually not a guest. He is one of our hosts. Everybody say hi to Dave. Will, Dave, how you doing today? <laughs> hey, hey, Tom. Hey, Ron. I'm, I am so uh, excited to meet you. I, oh, I, um, you. I saw a video that you put together and it didn't even come from Tom, actually. It came from somebody else. But your name's been yeah. popping up my inbox as somebody that needs, we need to pay attention to. And you have this great video series. Tom, did you mention this or no? Well, that's actually going to be one of my, so you kind of asked me about, because that was going to be one of my next questions. So chime into that, because that, they're, they're awesome videos. Yeah, so you got this great uh, video series. You're, you're a really good entertainer, by the way. Like, oh, forget sure. about what you know about things. Like, you are such a good entertainer, like TV quality sort of entertainment. I mean, so and you have this um, video series, and forgive me, I just saw the one that, was sent to me but i can't wait to dig into the rest of these but you have this one where you're trying drinks what's the name of it yeah. like drinking so, drinking with ron or something yeah so the company i work for uh mz which like i was just saying we just merged with a uh, burning glass for now mz burning glass they do this thing called beer with mz uh which they do different people in the company do these interviews i've done three of them and the whole concept is that they're short they're meant to be entertaining even though sometimes what you're talking about is probably the farthest thing from being funny or entertaining. Uh, but we're, as part of the gimmick of it is you're trying something new, hopefully that you've never tasted before in your life, live while you're doing this video. And a lot of it is your reaction as you're doing it. And uh, I, really, I really love the, that part of it, that 
it's not only about talking about these subjects, but you get to see the humanity of the person that you're talking to. It's like if we were out together and I popped open this drink that I've never tried before, these are the reactions you'd be getting from me uh, right live in the, in the moment. Now, the one I saw, you were, you were drinking a margarita, and it's just... In a can. And margarita from a can, right? And it's just so funny. Like, that. this is what adds the entertainment quality to this amazing content. Ron, you must uh, do a lot of speaking gigs, right? I mean, that. I mean, I'm assuming this is your first love is almost like entertainment, and also I know stuff. Is that... <laughs> it's a funny thing that you're saying that. When I was, uh, when I was young... I was I loved acting as a as a child, and as I got older, and we our family moved, and I got a little bit more shy and stopped doing that. But always was a passion of mine. Uh, but I will tell you something, and this is really important. Uh, a number of years ago, I had been asked. Uh, I was starting to speak a little bit more, and I was asked to go to a conference. And the speaker before me at that conference was just insanely dull. And I remember looking around the room at people, and I was like. They came to this conference. They paid money to come here. They didn't ask to be tortured by this really dull speaker. And I made a pledge to myself. This was this has to be 16 years ago that I was like, when I spoke, I loved what I do and I love talking about what I do. So they're going to feel that. They're going to feel it as if we're out having drinks at a bar and I'm talking about economics there, which is sadly enough is actually true. <laughs> I think some people like me to do it in that setting. But I just, I feel that necessity of saying, if you want people to really relate to what you're doing, then be passionate about it. And, and Tom, and earlier something we did this year, you know, I was talking about, you know, people who even own companies, you're passionate about what you do. What we fail to do so often is to be able to relay that passion to other people that they're just as excited about it as you are. And um, it's I'm very it's it's nice to hear these things said because it's something I take very seriously. Do you know what I'm glad of, Dave? Tell me. I'm glad that Ron had that experience before we hired him in 2007 because we literally hired him in 2007 to speak to our group on labor economics when it, we were going through a labor wave back then as well. So he was he was very enlightening, and so. Uh, and here it is, like what, 14 years later, and you're still talking about him. Tell me about how this came up. Like, how did you? So Ron and I have this past that no one knows about and that Ron and I played can, in our can worship. Can we talk about it here in public? <laughs> we can. This is actually one of those conversations we can. So Ron and I played on a worship team in our church for literally probably 10 years together. He was the lead singer. What, explain what a worship team is. Like you compete and who can worship no, you're the best? Who can, yeah, like, yeah, who's yeah. most likely to get into heaven or something? Is that what we're doing? Right. You know, it, it, it was the band. We were the band. We had a, we had some amazing musicians. He was the lead guitar and lead singer, and I was the drummer. And the what people loved about people would come up to me afterward and go, "What I love about you and Ron is y'all bring Led Zeppelin to church." <laughs> me and Ron never held back. We we made sure yeah. that the people that were born in the fifties heard our passion through how we played, and but people that yeah. were in their twenties loved it as well because it entertained them. So. Um, so that's that's kind of that's how we met, and that's how we've become friends over the over the years, and it's, it's been it's been an awesome relationship. But what I've always loved about Ron is his incredible knowledge and passion to know more than anybody about the data behind labor economics, which is why we're here today. So let's let's jump into that. So Ron, there's this I've been seeing a lot more conversation on the labor drought issue coming around, and I know your yeah. team you were part of an authorship of a I guess it's like a 37 to 40 page. A special white paper document. Um, so kind of unpack what's in that document about what the, what's this labor drought about? Yeah, so it's a 55 page thing. Now that includes a lot of pretty pictures because in order to keep you entertained, we can't just bombard you with text. But uh, so the, the that's kind of step back just a second to the, the end of last year, uh, started noticing just a brutal situation where we saw unemployment was high, but yet every company we talked to we were literally almost in tears at how hard it was to fill jobs. And so I wrote a, a, a little blog white paper towards the end of last year, uh, of which gained tremendous amount of traction. And in that, when I was doing that research, it kind of stirred up the fact of something that I had been studying since around 2014, which was the fact that boomers were getting older and they were starting to leave and there just wasn't a population as much behind them. And so I had actually started writing and actually written this section of an article 
And then the, the person who runs our, our marketing communications team, a, a fellow by the name of Rob Sense, he found out about it. He's like, look, we've been looking about doing something with the, the boomer population as well. And I was like, well, Rob, you came to the right place because not only have I written this section, I said, but I actually started taking notes about a year ago because I was thinking about even maybe writing a book on this subject. So everything that I had kind of had in my mind at that time made it into the, what we have is the three sections of the of this paper and for people who haven't read it the the overriding theme is that this is kind of the ultimate frog boiling in water and i'm sorry it's a kind of a gross analogy but it's this idea that as this boomer population was so large and they've been going through the population all during our lifetime so we accepted things as reality and fact that were nothing more than a demographic shift. So uh, when, you know, as boomer women entered the labor force, so you have this large population, but at the same time you have this population, women are entering the workforce, they're getting college degrees. So now you have two educated people in the labor force for an entire lifetime who also have an incredible work ethic, a desire to work 70 hour work weeks, um, just plentiful labor, uh, educated labor, lots of it all over the place. And we got very um, accustomed to that. And we didn't realize that what was happening to us was things that, uh, these were things that were resulting because of this huge explosion of a population. So what we talk about in the paper is there's this population that goes through, what does that mean? Uh, you know, what does it mean for employers? You know, one of the things it means is you can come up with a really detailed job description because there's tons of people to take your job. And then we get to this kind of current reality that we're in right now, and that's the section that I'm, I primarily wrote, which is why are we not seeing this, what's happening as these boomers kind of leave and what we, we see uh, and what I talked about in that uh, beer with Emsi where I drank the salty margarita is that there's a very different mindset of the people behind them. And that mindset is, is something they're enabled to do, uh, which we talk about in the paper around record wealth accumulation and household wealth, uh, leading people to not be as desperate for work. And then the last component, which is, well, what's happening in the future because people aren't having babies anymore. So there is going to be no more there will be no more growth of our population. It will invert and it will start to shrink. And this is not something MZ, you know, we studied on our own. This is something that other people have been talking about for years, but they talk about it in terms of a demographic sense. And what I'm trying to say is, let's talk about it in terms of a labor sense, because as we, as we invert, and it's not just the US, the whole population of the world will eventually invert. Uh, as we start to see these populations going down, we have to change this way of thinking that labor was always plentiful, it was always going to be there, we could have as much of it as we want. And we're already in this reality of it's not there, it's going away, and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse uh, as we continue to invert uh, as an economy. And all of this stuff is not speculation. I mean, we our birth rates started going down in the early 70s, we're feeling the impact now, they're getting worse. So this is only gonna keep compounding. So that's what we wanna just get into people's head of, Look, we're not trying to throw, you know, fire on you and just hurt you. What we're trying to say is this is a reality. So you should be thinking about this reality as you look forward. Well, you know, with, with um, good data comes innovation and knowing the future. That's what I love about this stuff is talking about the future. If you know you're not going to have, you have to grow your company 50% the next 10 years. That's only 5% a year, but you have to do it with very little human labor in front of you. Well, then you can have the conversation. How do you do that? So my big question, I know, I know Dave's got one broiling that I'll let him have in a second. But Well, now I got another question. Is 5% a year equal to 50% over 10 years? Uh, that's a math problem I have to work on later. You can do that. So If the base gets bigger, then your 5% is compounding. So just Yeah, just that, that's just simple math. I was doing simple okay. math. So, it's, compounding. Um, yeah. it's easy for people to calculate that. 5 times 10 equals compound is probably 15. So, Go on. I, I didn't mean to interrupt with my math. No. <laughs> um, so, so before COVID, we were at about 3.5% unemployment, but people were somewhat adequately had enough people to push through the throughput in some capacities. Mm -hmm. to, would you say that or no? No. And this is what I call it this kind of like, whether it was deliberate or not, it's kind of ignorance about where we were prior to these pandemic actions. So if you go back to February of 2020, 
we had the lowest unemployment rate in history outside of wartime. And what we were, every time I would talk to manufacturing companies, everybody, they were dying. The construction industry was in, in a catastrophic situation. Right. We couldn't build homes. If they did build homes, they only wanted to build luxury homes. Well, that's a problem when millennials are trying to buy entry-level homes while boomers are trying to downsize out of luxury homes to entry-level homes because they have a seven-bedroom house and now they want a one-bedroom house. So they weren't building the one thing that we needed. Why weren't they building it? They had nobody to work on it. Right. So this was all happening prior to the pandemic. And we were feeling these effects but we just didn't understand why we were feeling the effects. And people don't sit around thinking of, oh, 3.5% unemployment, that's really low. I mean, the average person on the street, if I told them the unemployment rate was 3.5%, they'd be like, yay, and I don't care. I mean, whatever. Like, without the context of knowing where we had been over the course of our lifetimes, which was anywhere between five to eight, mm -hmm. you don't know that 3.5% is devastating. It's, it's insanely tight. And so with the pandemic, and there's a lot of dynamics there, and I, we don't need to go into that in this call, where we saw a, a real acceleration of things that we already knew were happening. So I want to talk about that part. So in the pandemic, boomers were retiring before the pandemic. They were retiring around 10,000 a day. During the pandemic, they doubled. They added another million in excess to what they were normally doing during the pandemic. A lot of people who were, were like, I'm towards my final years. You know what? With this whole thing going on, I'm afraid I'm just going to retire right now. And so they did. We lost a million more than we normally lose, which is around two million. So you have this acceleration of that. You also have people who were barely engaged in the labor force. The labor force participation rate, as we talk about in the article, these are people who are willing to work, had been declining, especially amongst men for two decades, but it really had been declining recently. And so what we saw during the pandemic is it turned and just plunged and that for prime age people, for prime age people, so 25 to 54 year olds, it's not recovered. We are now well into this and people are not coming back into the labor pool. There's been a vaccine for months. They're not coming back into the labor pool. In some cases, you know, we know that this was a result and continues to be a result of things dealing with um, unemployment assistance. However, I'm talking about people who aren't even in the labor pool. So you can't collect unemployment if you're not you know, looking for a job, these people are just out of it. And during the pandemic, more people just separated away from the, the labor pool. And what's shocking is to this point, they're not coming back. And that's a huge concern because if this, if it's new that this plunging of this line actually has hit a new low, uh, we're missing three to five more million people. So I, I've got a couple of questions, Tom. One is, this is a, a confusing to me, and forgive me if I missed this in the very beginning, it's a little confusing to me because Tom wasn't too many episodes ago in this podcast that we had a gentleman on talking about how there was going to be a huge surge of people coming into the association space. Is this not just the Gen X blip? Because, you know, uh, Tom, are you, you're on the cuff of Baby Boomer and Gen X, right? Right. Yeah, so the Gen Xers, we're kind of, there's not a lot of us. You know, we're, we're whiny about things, but there's not a lot of us. You got the... You us the bust. Okay, so you got the Baby Boomers, then the Gen X, which is like a little blip of some people. And then you have yeah. Gen... Millennials. Millennials, thank you. And so isn't this just a little blip? until we see the surge of millennials come into the workforce, which they're already doing, they're just younger, right? Like, so the millennials what's now the worry? Are is this a short early thirties. Yeah, they're in their early 30s. So if this were true, because we're already in, Zs are already now the next ones coming into the labor pool. They're, they're, they're young 20s, so the Zs are coming in now. So the millennials are, the, are all in, and yet they are the most disengaged group that we've ever seen and this is a tough statement to talk about because a lot of people are like get angry You're like hey don't don't diss on millennials and i don't like when people say that you know they're underachievers or they're not motivated it's like i divorce myself from all of that my job is to look at labor economic trends the millennial generation when we look at labor force participation rates have been plunging the other thing that we've noticed about that population because we can't we can't isolate them by age is they're shifting from full-time to part-time work voluntarily. So they're not doing part-time work because they have to, they're doing it voluntarily. That trend line's been aiming up at a, at that, a rapid rate. Part-time work, another way of saying the gig economy? 
Uh, no, it's actually more like restaurants and like people doing part-time jobs, retail, restaurants. Uh, we see a big shift. So if you go back and you study, um, there's, there's ways that you kind of look at this flow of labor between industries. Manufacturing loses most of its people to like restaurants and retail. So, and they don't get them back from those channels. So it seems that manufacturing organically grows a labor pool, but when they lose them, they lose them to part-time jobs. And this is something we see in particular with men, not so much with women. Um, with women, there is a downward trend in labor force participation. However, there's different dynamics that we believe are at play there. And part of, part of that is, once again, it's gonna go back to those boomers. So the boomers, especially women in the boomer generation were passionate about getting into the labor pool. So they got in and you saw this increase in the labor force participation rate. And then when they started aging out of that prime age group, that 25 to 54, as that started dissipating, then we see these rates going back down. So we know that the generations after them weren't as engaged. In the paper, I talk about why this is the case, which is um, there's two primary reasons. The third is actually kind of related to the, to the first one. And that is when you have gone through for all of human history with a primary breadwinner in a house, and typically that person didn't have a college degree to two people having college degrees. What I talk about in that paper is this massive accumulation of wealth that the median, uh, median household income just we talking about from a for a 20 year period before the 70s it went from like 5 to 14,000 that the average household went from 5 to 14,000 but in the next 20 years it went from 14 to 54,000 so we ended up accumulating all of this wealth in the paper we talk about how much of, of that is there to be inherited and then the average i think the average household it's 1.2 million my apologies to people on this call they're like i'm not going to get 1.2 million I was just saying, on average, we, we're expecting this transfer of wealth, which I believe is 1.6 trillion overall. And that's going to make the millennials the richest generation in all of human history. And yet, they did not earn that money. That money is actually being conveyed to them. We are already seeing the effects of that now. In the paper, what we talk about is uh, they don't move out. They stay, they stay in their parents' homes. They're not getting married. Uh, they get married way later. They're having children. Their first child, for men in particular, is happening into their 30s now. Um, they're, they're getting married at 30 years old when they used to get married at 22 to 24. Uh, they're buying a house well in their 30s now when they used to buy homes in their mid-20s. All of this is uh, showed up in the census, uh, which I talk about in the video. More men, 25 to 34 years old, live with their parent than with a spouse in the last census for the first time, I think we said since 1880, which was right when the Civil War was kind of wrapping up. So it made a little sense in the Civil War. But, but we just probably because things, people and I'm not are getting to, married later, right? People are getting married later and, you know, there's, but I mean, life the vast is majority of people are probably single living on their own somewhere, right? Or with their parents. Yeah, there were more, well, there are people living on their own, but there were more living with their parents than with a spouse. Because uh, they married. Time. What's that? Because they're not married. They're just living at home. We're talking 25 to 34 years old. Yeah. So, you know, I think back at 22, I got out of grad school. I moved to Washington, D.C. I lived in a pretty poor area of D.C. because I didn't make money. But, you know, you kind of just fought your way out of that. Uh, we don't see that occurring nowadays. And a lot of people will say things like, well, they've got student debt. But the problem that we see is they're delaying getting their first job. So it's not going to it's not going to help you to pay off your student debt if you're not working. And so when you see these labor force participation rates going down, student debt isn't an explanation for that. Well, I'm not gonna work because I have student debt. Well, that's counterintuitive. You would think you would wanna work 10 times more to, to do that. And then there's the people like, well, they don't have houses to move to. And it's like, well, if they were working, we probably have more construction workers that we could build these things. It's all gonna keep ending up with a circular argument. No matter what you do, you end up with this, well, why are labor force participation rates going down? Why are they disengaging at a time that they, you think that they would be needing to engage even more. Is there a definition of what labor force means? Like my mm -hmm. son is, he's a junior in college, but his intent when he graduates is to continue working on his business, which is called Kona brand. And he's, he's working on building like uh, some fun uh, Hawaiian type flannels. That's his thing. Um, 
is he going to be, is that the labor force? If he builds a business and, and works, that's the labor force? Yeah. So it's actually, it's pretty easy definition. So uh, the way the government looks at it is it starts with what's called a civilian you know, population. So you have the civilian population. It's typically uh, what's not included in that is um, not uh, in, incarcerated people are typically not included in that. Um, and then people who have obtained American citizenship would not be included in that population number. So that's your population. And then, so it's you, above the age of 16, literally until forever, until you say I'm out of the labor force, I'm retired. They, if you're to be counted in the labor force, you either A, have to have a job or B, have to be looking for a job. It's a requirement that you have to be looking for a job. The way they do that, anybody who wants to know how this works and methodology, the people who did this were down the hall from me in BLS. They, during the week of the 12th, and I'm actually in the survey right now, crazy, my first time in my life. During the week of the 12th, they ask you, do you have a job or did you look for work? And you, and that by that answer, they create the unemployment rate and all of those other uh, employment-based statistics that aren't dealing with payroll. So if you are like, no, I don't have a job and I don't want a job, I'm not looking for anything, then you are called not in the labor force. In the not in the labor force, they break it down into two categories. This is a really important thing to talk about, or two categories. One is you're not in the labor force, but you'd like to have a job, which typically means that maybe like during the pandemic, I'd like to work, but my child is, is home, you know, doing virtual schooling. So I can't get a job. It's not going to do me any good to look for one because I'd have to turn it down even if I got one. So that's the first character, the characteristic. The second one is not in the labor force, not looking for a job. The one we're looking for is that first one. And we did grow that number quite a bit. But you'd be surprised that the surplus that we've created is only, in my counts, about a million to two million that we have left. But we are still seven, eight million shy of where we need to be. So if we can get a million or two million of these people back, and then the excessive like two to three million that are still on unemployment back, I'm still counting a gap of around three million, and I'm not quite sure where they're going to come from. And this is right now. It's actually just an odd thing to look at. I've been spending my my entire life has been spent staring at these kind of nerdy numbers, and I'm scratching my head right now, going, I know we're missing a million more of the boomers, so I know that that's gone. But my concern is, look, I'm still needing three million to break even. And I don't know how we're going to find that break even number. So it's something we're going to have to watch going forward. I mean, we, in a sense, we may already be inverting. I just can't believe that would be true. I thought that would happen more around 2030. Um, a lot of people said it would take 2050, but I think we're already feeling some of that uh, right now. Weird. So Ron, you're, you're talking about a bunch of how data is formed. So in the report or just things like in y'all's videos, there's a, a number of numbers that I was, I was shaking my head at that were kind of crazy. So what are some of the more, the more pertinent data to share here, kind of the more surprising data or data that makes you go kind of, oh my gosh, I didn't really know that. What are some of that data, the actual numbers that you say, man, if anybody needs to know numbers, this is, these are some key numbers they need to know. Yeah, so let, let's talk about this in two different things. So let's talk about birth rate. If the birth rate drops like a 10th, you know, like we, if you go from like 1.7 to 1.6, I mean, we're talking about five, six million babies that aren't born. Right. So if you look forward, that would be five, six million more people that you'd have in a population joining the labor force in like 16, 18 years. Uh, and we're missed last year in 2020, our labor, our, our birth rate dropped a 10th of a percent. And people don't understand how devastating that number is. We were already been, so just so you, everyone knows, the replacement rate for births is 2.1. So that's a, a person, a woman, over the course of her childbearing years having 2.1 children. Uh, you have to have that in order to replace your cells. It's, it's, it's a complicated form to try to explain. Uh, countries like the US have been below 2.1 since the early 1970s, and we're right now hovering in that 1.7, 1.9 range. If you're in Japan, that number is like 0.9. Right. So Japan's economy is turning and will eventually shrink out. Um, there are other countries where it's also, you know, some countries in Europe where we're talking low 1.1s, 1.5s, and those economies too will start to invert uh, and go and go down. In the U.S., we have had this level for a long time. So I first want to say that because the reason why that's so important is 
there is no relief coming. To have relief coming, you have to travel back in time 16 years ago and tell every woman then to have more babies. <laughs> they didn't. Right. So every year that that thing stays below replacement rate, it's a compounding problem. And we've right. been doing it now since boomer women entered in uh, to the labor force. So there's that kind of like as the boomer women entered in, and we see this in economies all over the world, as women's labor force participation picks up, birth rates always go down. It's just a well-established fact. And we've been experiencing that here for a long time. So this isn't, this isn't something where we go, well, we're kind of guessing that this is going to happen to the U.S. It's an absolute certainty that it's happening. It's happening right now, and it will never go away. So there's that first part. And then the second part, which is something you know I kind of cover in the middle section, is there is an attitude change due to this accumulation of wealth. Due to the way the boomers kind of went through, we got sloppy in the way that we hired. I mean, it was hey, we'll just keep hiring people and we'll throw people at the problem. You know, people, years ago, there was an article written called Rise of the Robots. Everybody knows this thing. We were all going to get replaced by robots. When that article came out, as I was doing my speaking engagements, I was saying, you wish, you wish there was a Rise of the Robots. You'll be begging for robots right. in about 10 years. And that, people just couldn't fathom that. They're like, well, they're going to replace our jobs. And like, you wish because we don't have near enough amount of people to take those jobs. In the article we talk about, the projections are we're 6 million people short by 2025. My guess is it could be way worse than that, and it's just going to keep compounding. So we have to change our mindset of labor is the answer to every problem. We also have to really, and this is the most important thing I can say to anybody out there, you really have to change your mindset to the way it was before the boom, which is let's go back in time when the workforce you know, for, for reasons, there were a lot of it was because there wasn't a very educated workforce back, you know, in the 40s and 50s. But if we go back to that time, people hired people. Get me a good person. I like them. Hire them. So this, it, there wasn't job descriptions that were three pages long talking about all the detailed things that you, you need this person to have had. It was, I need a person. And then you would train those people up in your company. And you would be you know, people were so good at training and you had mentorships. You didn't think of it as mentorships back then. It was just normal. You hired them and put them under Bob and Bob was really good. And Bob taught, you know, Dave and Dave taught the next person and Sheila taught Mary and everybody was doing this naturally. We have to go back to that mindset because if you go to the shelf now, the products that you want on the shelf are all picked slim. So you got to start finding replacement products. And that is training your mind to say, just get me good people and I'll take care of all of the rest from my end, like it used to be. Okay, Ron, are there different segments of the labor force that are struggling? And, and the reason I asked that, I w was down at Anthony's Pizza last night, and then, you know, I chit-chat with the guy behind the counter. He's like, hey, we're hiring. Got anybody? He, no, he said something like, sorry, it took so long. We're running light. We, we need people. We got anybody, anybody, anyone at all. He's like, we're even hiring 15-year-olds at this point. Yep. So is the, are you seeing there's a, a greater demand for the less educated roles oh, or is there a greater demand for uh, the white-collar, higher-educated positions? Yeah. Or is well, it just straight across the board? Yeah, STEM shortage we've had for years. There's nothing new going on there. What did you say? Uh, STEM, I'm sorry, science, technology, uh, okay. math, the engineering math, STEM. Uh, we've had that shortage for years. We've solved that by importing people. And essentially, it's like we had a deficit of a product, so we imported product from India or China or whatever. Uh, got some really bad news on that that we, could, we shared in the article about um, those things have really changed. Those countries are in tremendous labor shortages themselves. They don't want these people to go anymore. Uh, they're going to start cutting those things off. India, in particular, has a tremendous shortage of uh, IT people because they've let so many go. Uh, so you're going to see kind of corrections there where a lot of countries are like, look, we can't let our workforce go. Another one, Bangladesh, a lot of people are like, well, it's a very poor country. Yeah, well, they have a 5.3% unemployment rate. Like, all the people that they have, they're working. <laughs> you know, it's just a very different world now than it used to be. There's a wonderful book called Factfulness. Uh, written by Hans Rosling, it talks about we all still have a mindset of the world that was in the 70s, but the world's totally different now, a lot more educated. They have their own industries and things. That's one thing. I want to put that STEM thing to the side. I want to talk about the other one. So we absolutely 
have had a shortage of people that do or more of that blue collar mindset. So more of these people who you know only have a high school degree. When we look at just shortly before uh, COVID, the unemployment rate amongst people with a with a high school diploma had also hit record lows. So we were taking those people a lot more. Now there's two things that went on there. I've spoken about the first one for years, which is one, for years parents were telling their children, get a, go to college, go to college. Well, we're so proud of you. You went to college. Well, everybody telling their children to do that, eventually over time everybody's going to college and now you don't have anybody doing skilled trades. Now you don't have anybody who's like a UPS driver or willing to work in an Amazon house or be a cook in a, in a restaurant because they're all you know, pursuing this college route. That's one problem that's been systemic now for, for 20 years. The second problem, and this is one we gotta be a little careful with, was the, the threshold of the checks, that the, the assistance checks that went through last year and the extended UI created basically this thing of, if you were making less than $15 an hour, it definitely did not behoove you to work versus collecting that because you can, they, none of the states were requiring you to prove that you were searching for a job. So a lot of people opted then to just not be employed and take that extended UI, which I said works out somewhere, it depends on what your state you're in, but anywhere from 1375 to high, just a bit above $15 an hour. What's really fascinating is we can see that actually in the pay increases that are occurring in two industries, one manufacturing and the other eating and drinking places, so restaurants. Uh, in the past, um, I would say six to 12 months, you've seen average pay in those industries go from you got kind of this $12, $13 an hour mark to now 15 and slightly above as they're trying to compete uh, with that UI. In my opinion, that's a who cares statement. It's causing a devastating problem right now and will continue until September 6th when we start to see a lot of these uh, payments go away. Uh, some states have already started to put things in motion to kind of cut off the extended UI. But I think people accumulated so much money during that time. If you were making $10 an hour and then for the past nine months you made $15 an hour, you know, you can, you can probably go up quite a bit before you have to re-engage. And I think you will see a delay in that. But September 6th is kind of that date that everybody's looking at as when will people start to re-enter. So I think it's going to be a pretty horrific summer. Uh, the company I work for, MZ, wrote an article saying also that Twix, we always get a higher a level quits in the summer. Uh, if you look at government data, we set the record number for quits uh, last month. I think you're going to see that actually intensify over the summer. So for everybody on the call, uh, if you've been experiencing quits, we're predicting that's going to get way, way worse. You know, you could lose 30 to 40% of your workforce. The funny thing about that is everybody's quitting, but eventually they're going to find another job. So you'll get some of those people that are quitting other places. Uh, restaurants in particular are really struggling. Here's a strange fact. The labor force participation rate from, of 16 to 19 year olds is higher now than it was pre-COVID. It's the only population that is higher than pre-COVID. I was talking about the prime age workforce is low and not recovering, but kids are, they're not the problem. They are, you know, they are able to enter these jobs, enter the workforce. However, the amount of vacancies that were created by this prime age workforce not re-engaging has enabled younger people, 16 to 19 year olds, to take jobs that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten that normally put them into fast food places, that normally put them into restaurants, into these, what we would call more entry level jobs you would expect a, a kid to take. They're not having to take those jobs. I'm literally speaking about my son right now, who's 18 years old, who eschewed all the hundreds of tons of openings of restaurants everywhere in our area to work at the local pool, uh, basically shoveling uh, alcoholic drinks to uh, <laughs> middle-aged mothers who are having their kids the pool. So he's benefiting greatly from this situation. But normally they would be taking those types of jobs. But there's a vacancy in that labor pool that these kids are taking right now. So we will get some relief. Uh, towards the end of the summer, you will start to see relief for some of these fast food places and things like that. I think during that time, you'll see some places shut down. Maybe they'll shut down temporarily. Maybe it'll be full time. But I think we're getting a glimpse of what the future is going to look like. It's just Let's not make much out of what's happening right now, uh, which really is pandemic associated, and I think will go away a, a bit when, when that goes away. So I, got, I got one big question, Ron. So as we, we got uh, probably about six minutes left, and I, I want people on this, on this who see this to really walk away going, what Tom, kind of I got like 30 more questions. So we, <laughs> six minutes, that's using your math. I think that's like five minutes a question, but go on. I'll leave, I'll do 30 second answers. 
So, so here's the big question, but, but for associations listening to this, they're going to go back to their leadership, their boards, all their boards are members who are all struggling in this area. So yeah. what kind of conversations, looking at the future, the rest of the 20s, the 20s are slated looking at some economists to be the largest economic boom in our history, but we got to have this people problem. What conversations should people listening on here start going back to their association boards and talking about to create solutions for the issues? That's, yeah, that's a great question. question, Ron. That I love that question because the people listening to this are problem solvers sure. for industry, right? These are not industry people that that are panicking right now. Like, what do I do? These are the problem solvers yep. for industry. The associations are the people that might have a really strong impact on this issue right now. So, yeah, I'm with you, Tom. Great question. I wish I had a great answer to the great question because it's a great <laughs> question. Um, so let's let's hit this. Uh, at least I'll try to approach this from a separate, several different ways. So first off, this what we're experiencing right now we were experiencing before COVID struck. Uh, industries, like I said, like construction and everything, were having problems. We had uh, a lot of openings in manufacturing. Uh, now we have record numbers of uh, job openings in manufacturing. We won't always have record numbers of job openings. Things will probably return back to where it was before, where it's just a lot. We've had some years to, to, to deal with this. However, okay, first and foremost, I talked about it a little bit ago, which is training, uh, getting incredibly good and efficient at onboarding people as fast as possible is enormous. Uh, start to go back. I cannot believe how many people have job descriptions that are still ridiculous right now, like still asking for so many things. Get rid of all of the things that aren't absolutely necessary. A lot of the job descriptions that people have, they actually created off the people who were leaving those positions after a number of years. I mean, we see that obviously in STEM, but you had a person, Joe, who was on the job for 30 years. Joe accumulated all of these skill sets, and then you try to replace Joe with essentially Joe, who Joe's gone. So get rid of all of these things that were added over the years. If you're dealing with more of that entry level job, it really is about, look, I need people through here. You know, anywhere I can engage with, get out to high schools, get out to the trade schools, engage people. And I talked about this on an earlier uh, call Tom was on. You have to sell what you're doing. I, you, this is not like it used to be. You don't put a help wanted sign out. You're seeing this with the restaurants. You're putting help wanted signs out. People aren't responding to it. Why? Because they've in their mind already decided what this job is like. They don't care about the culture. The culture could be great. They don't know that. You're competing with a lot of other companies for workers. I, I called it in a tweet, a reverse depression. In the depression, we remember seeing all of these people lined up you know, applying for a job, there was 200 people to apply for two openings. Now imagine the opposite. There's 200 openings for every one person in a job. I can show you so many markets. I can actually show you those statistics. I can show you nursing numbers in one market where there's 7,500 openings for 90 nurses. 7,500 openings for 90 nurses. This is a reverse of a problem. So don't contribute to the problem by first, you know, you got to, the pay thing is there. I, I actually, what we try to talk about in the papers, pay is not the biggest thing. It's not a motivator as much for this younger generation as you would have thought. Uh, certainly not like it was for the boomers. So they're not going to be enticed by that. What they're trying to do is, is what I'm doing meaningful? Why would I want to do this? You have to figure out a way of taking the passion that you have for the work that you do and being excited with the people that you're interviewing, stop ripping them apart in an interview and start selling what you're doing and talking about the awesome things that you're creating, the awesome things that you contribute to society for, um, because you're, you're in a war there and you're, you've never done these things before. And one thing you've probably never done before, which no one wants to hear is, it's not gonna matter anymore whether you wanna do something, but flexibility has been forced upon you. And I, it's this idea of people will come in, they'll clock in in the morning and they'll clock out at the end of the day and that's gonna work for forever. It's not working now. It wasn't working pre-pandemic. The reason why I talk about in the article, this voluntary part-time shift that we're seeing in prime age men is to show that they've engaged with their feet of walking away from manufacturing jobs in particular to walk, going to more things like restaurants or retail where they're like, look, the pay's similar enough and I get the flexibility. I don't have to work a 40 hour week and I make my schedule's flexible. Right. Uh, so there's, there's a level of flexibility that, that I think we just have to figure out how to do it. And you're going to, you're going to try and you're going to fail, but don't stop doing something because you tried it once. Oh, we did that and it didn't work. Well, do it again. Like get creative. It's if you were selling a product 
and you didn't have a sale the next that that particular day you wouldn't scrap that product and go make a new product so think about labor the same way that you think about uh, the rest of what you're doing and which is my last point which is be deliberate don't don't approach labor don't say it's hr's problem there, I need people. Why aren't you getting me people? Everybody needs to be in on that conversation. The executives need to be in the rooms with HR executives, and they all need to be thinking together, what is our labor strategy? How can we become less dependent? What jobs could we actually combine? How can we do this better? Versus just going, I, hey, we need people. I, let's put another posting. Let's, let's pay for a new website. You know, let's, let's get another uh, recruiting agency in here. It's like, if there aren't people, maybe rethink what you're doing with labor versus just saying, I need, I need, I need more. I like what you said to me a couple of months ago, Ron, when you said, Tom, we need to be thinking, and it's actually at the end of your video, we need to be rethinking how we're going to get the work done. Yep. Period. And I like, and, and someone else said something last, uh, last month that really hit me, is that quit trying to interview for a job and start selling a career, which just kind of plays into what you just talked about. And, so Dave, I, I, I think we could talk about this for, there's so much to still unpack in this stuff. And so maybe, we, Ron, we might invite you back again for a part two down the road, but, but Dave. I, I would like that, Tom, because there's one topic we didn't talk about, and I don't think we have time to get into right now, which is how DEI plays into this. DEI is a huge topic in, in our space. And sure. I can tell you, as somebody who's hiring a lot of people, it's a very, very difficult hurdle to embrace, to embrace hurdles. It's, it's, I mean, it's something I want to create a diverse team. Really, really hard to do, but we don't have time for that. Tom, the way we, oh, go ahead, Ron, go ahead. What do you have? Just really quick on that. Um, I find this is so just really, really quick at a point last year during the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement, there was a a group of CEOs that got together and said, we're going to create a million jobs for I think it was for African-American men. And if you looked at the unemployment level, the actual number of people right before the pandemic, there were only a million unemployed uh, African-American men. You're always going to have, this is a, a country of 160 million people where it's an imperfect market. Some people in Detroit need to hire, but the people that need that need jobs is living in Reno. Like you're never going to have a perfect situation. So those unemployment rates were already very low. And in the comment of that article, I said, maybe we need to teach CEOs basic math because you can't create jobs for people that don't exist. So what I see right now is people with a lot of really good intentions, completely misunderstanding supply. So you could sit there and say, well, I want, you know, we need to hire a lot more IT people that are diverse. And then if you were to actually look what's out there, they're just, the supply's not there. You know, there's a lot of other large companies that are already hitting universities up and locking people down before these people even have their degrees. Uh, so I just want to make sure that don't ever come up with a, a, a DNI solution that didn't start with analyzing the labor market, the supply of labor, what's coming out of the universities, what relationships we have. You, it's not going to happen because you open jobs you know, you posted jobs and you told your HR people, hey, be, be on the lookout. You know, I, I, we we're trying to meet some, some quotas here. It's like, if the people aren't there, you're going to have those jobs open for two years. Like, you have to understand it right. still starts with the data. So I just want right. to make sure that I get that jammed in there really quick. That's a great, that's a great point to end on, Dave. You know, just to kind of yeah. maybe set the tone for a part two to talk about how do you deal with that. I, I would love to have Ron back and maybe another person, and I don't know who yet, to talk about that mm-hmm. piece of it because I have heard the contrary to that is you need to look in a different pond if you want different fish. The other really quick comment, here is what happens when supply is way down and demand is way up what happens then inflation you're seeing price goes up Mm -hmm. so if you have a a quote unquote a diverse person define it as you will that is in high demand qualified uh, a person of color whatever however you want to define it and there's not many of them in that particular scenario, price goes way up, which I think is really, really interesting. Another reason why you don't see a lot of quote unquote diverse people applying for jobs because they're getting recruited. That's right. They're not applying. So you can't just post something on ASAE's job board 
and expect to get a diverse pool of people applying. All right, Tom, takeaway from this. This is how we wrap it up. Think about a takeaway, Ron. One comment that you want people to walk away with. What do you got, Tom? For me, it just if you're an association, you need to be talking to your people about this issue point blank with all the data. We're going to send Ron's paper out, but you need to be thinking through the process of automation. How can you automate whatever processes, whether it's information sharing, robotics, artificial intelligence? It's the only way your members are going to grow their businesses over the course of the next 10 years because the human labor just isn't there. One key fact that Ron talked, uh, kind of alluded to, China's workforce, they're slated, their, their population is slated to, to disappear 400 million people in the next 60 years. 400 million because of the One Child for Family Act. So that just shows you how the impact of having less than two kids in a family for a number of years can have a dramatic impact of the future. So talk about it and get serious about it because your, your members are going to need this data to think differently. Our members are having Ron come in in October so we can have this conversation so they can stop thinking about people being in the future of work and how they can look at maybe automation combined with people to make their worth grow. My takeaway is, is very similar to yours. I changed it halfway through yours because I like what you said. But I think there's a process for um, uh, becoming more efficient. And my friend Ari Mizell, that's M-E-I-S-E-L, we had to get him in this podcast to actually talk about efficiency and productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ari um, ha- has this philosophy of um, uh, optimize, uh, automate, outsource in that order optimize a process, then determine if you can automate it somehow using a form of technology or a collection of technologies that are talking to each other. And then uh, if you can uh, optimize it, but you can't automate it, think about outsourcing it. So there's a lot of things we can do better without having to hire more people. All right, Ron, what do you got? What's your, the key takeaway you want people to remember from this? Key takeaway is something you both have just touched on and something I mentioned just a little bit ago, which is everything has to be deliberate. You know, there, there's no accidental way through this. You're not going to wait this out. I, if you think that that's going to happen, you know, it's tough right now, but it's going to get better. Uh, we try in that article to make sh- crystal clear that it's been going on, it's getting worse, and it's going to get even more, you know, more worse, if that's a word, worser. Uh, so, uh, we make up words here. All the time. Don't worry about that. We got plenty. Yeah. But be deliberate about uh, these things. If you haven't had meetings in the past, have them now. Uh, sit down with the intent of saying, "Look, this isn't sustainable. We can't just keep throwing job job postings out there. There's got to be what is what is our long term strategy for how we're going to handle this." Awesome, Dave. That was awesome, buddy. What I love about Association Strong is we bring real topics for big deals that people need to think through. And I love having you as a co-host, buddy. I love having you as a co-host, buddy. There's a lot of love in here. Ron, thank you so much for today, my man. This was great. I can't wait to have you back. I love being here. Thank you, Ron. We hope you gained some inspiration that will help you run an efficient and effective association just like a business and maybe laugh a little with us. If you have a topic you would like to hear us talk about, or if you just want to reach out to us for any reason, you can contact us at Tom at TomMorrison.biz or Dave at PropFuel.com. Give us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget, subscribe and share with your friends.